Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We always read this parsha before the high holidays. Parshat Nitzavim is always read as we're approaching Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And uh, so each year it's a wonderful thing to look again at um, what this Pasha has to say to us this year right, as we approach the idea of tshuva, the idea of uh, repentance and the high holy days themselves, what, what it says to us this year. Because we're always looking at it through the lens of the Amim no Ra'im, the, the days of awe. Everybody, everybody got 29.9? Yeah. All right. So we'll begin. You stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, your tribal heads, your elders, and your officials, all the men of Israel, your children, your wives, even the stranger within your camp, from woodchopper to water dog, to enter into the covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is concluding with you this day, with its sanctions. To that end, he may establish you this day as his people and be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I make this covenant with its sanctions, not with you alone, but with those who are standing here with us this day before the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here this day. All right. So we're, we, we talked last week about a matzeva, right? Remember we talked about a matzeva? And what did we say a matzeva is? So, right, some kind of a... You know, some kind of a marker. It's a stone monument. So this is the noun. There's a verb, right? To what do you do to a marker? A big marker. Put it up. You put it up. <laughs> you erect it. You install it. So that that whatever that verb is, there, there, this this is the noun monument. You mon- monumentize. It, right? You, there's a verb that comes from that same shoresh in Hebrew that's what you do to the marker to get it in the right place and doing what it's supposed to do. The passive of that verb is what we have here, nitzavim. Right? So the nun makes it passive, but it's nitzav. Matseva, right, is the thing you put up. Nitzav. You have been monumentized, right? You are erected. You are so. That this is what this is saying. Y'all are that today. So it's a little obviously different than standing here, gathered, right? It's a much stronger sense of of there being a purpose to that, right? A monument has a purpose. Memorialized. But they're not, they're not not there, right? Memorialized means it's in your memory, right? It's in memory of. It's like, so y'all are actively, attentively, mamash, like, here, right? So it's, it's, an, it's a crazy word in English. It doesn't, it's very hard to translate. But, you, but knowing that it's the verb from the noun helps, right? Who's, who's the actor? If, that's the, if the people are the, being acted upon as being, you are set here to be... The monument to all this is it God that's setting them there as the monument? Presumably, right? Yeah. Um, so, so like you're they themselves are setting themselves up, right? 
All right. So the Atem. What is Atem? All y'all. He's so well trained, except he's a little wrong. So here, here we go. So what's Atem? Yeah, yeah. Not all y'all. What is Kulchem? All of you. All y'all. All y'all. All right. So Atem is you plural. Kulchem comes from a combination of the chem, which is you plural, and kol, which means what? What does kol mean with a with a kaf? All. So it would it looks like department of redundancy department. Y'all are gathered here. All y'all. Right. Well, we know Torah doesn't repeat itself. God forbid, for no reason. So, so what is kulchem pointing to? Why say all y'all? The women and children. Women and children. And those who are not. Aha. Uh-huh. Right. So by the end of this paragraph, we're going to have, right. right, an extension of the idea of who is Kulchem. All of us. And the rabbis take that and run with it. Right? All right. So, but from the very first sentence, what we get is y'all are here, like way here, all y'all. And then it's going to unpack that. In case we don't understand who Kulchem is, who all y'all is, we're going to get it unpacked here, right? Roshechem, Shiftechem, Ziknechem, Veshotrechem. So all the leaders, right? Duh, right? The leaders have to be there. Kol Ish Yisrael, every man of Israel. Now usually, sometimes that's where it stops. But not today. But does that mean male or is it Yes, Ish is definitely a sense of man. It is a sense of the males. Mm-hmm. Tapchem, so your little ones. Nshechem, your women, like your wives. The Gercha Asher Bekerev Machanecha, and the stranger who was in out, the midst of your camp. And then we're going to get, right, from this to this, right? This is the way Torah talks often. Biblical Hebrew um, talks in what's called merarisms. That. Uh, from this to from A to Z, right? When we say from A to Z, everybody gets what that means, right? So, so from whom to whom? From your wood chopper to your water drawer. So this is going to talk about all the categories of menial laborers who were often aliens. It's, it was no different in the ancient world than it is here in America 2016, right? Who does the menial labor? Folks who have no other options. Because Israelites didn't want to do it. We don't want to do it, right? So we have people come in who really desperately need the work and are in desperate situations, and, and menial labor is better than what the alternatives are. It was no different in the ancient world. And, by the way, it was stigmatized in the ancient world just like it is for us, right? Like what you do, your rank, you know, and your social rank was often tied to what you did. So the, those menial tasks were stigmatized. And I, I don't say that because that's a happy thing. I say it because, so what's Torah doing? Right, if that's stigmatized labor, what's Torah doing here? Unstigmatizing it. Being inclusive, unstigmatizing as regards who is invited to stand as part of the community, who 
Who is God inviting into God's presence? Who is God calling into a, into covenantal relationship? Everybody. And he's also uh, making everybody equal in God's eyes. So Torah here's a being very clear that as regards the covenant, everybody is equal. Everybody stands with the same neshama, yeah. right, in the same essence before God and is fully a member of the covenant. With no mechitza. With no mechitza. Mentioned. Right? There's no mechitza mentioned. There's no division, right, between anybody. Forget gender. You know, there's no separation between you and the stranger. And remember, strangers are not people you don't know in ancient Israel. Strangers are immigrants, right? They are people who come from another culture, from another place. Um, so, so there's no difference between you and the, the ger, you and the stranger. There's no mechitza. There's no separation. There's no better seating, right? For we're all human. We're all human. Exactly right. And not only are we all human, we, we are all human and all have the capacity and the responsibilities that come. Because we tend to think of rights and privileges as being a mark of status. But if you think about it in a way, responsibility is a mark of status, isn't it? Right? And I don't mean obligation like you have to because you're poor and you don't have another option. I mean, you accept responsibility the same way the head of the tribe does for keeping this nation's relationship with the deity in good shape. That, that's a huge honor in a way, right? That when you give someone... You count, and you, what do you count in? You count in making an agreement with God. You are just as, as responsible for keeping that agreement as some big shot, right? So, that's, so there's ways that responsibility brings dignity to people. And I think that, for me, is one of the moving parts of this. Is it's not just that you're also obligated, and you're also human. It's that you... You, you, the one who's most denigrated or, or ostracized or marginalized by the culture, you are just as much a part of this agreement as anybody else in terms of the divine being in right relationship to the people of Israel. That, that's huge. Non-Israelites impact the agreement between Israel and the deity. That's crazy if you think about it, right? But that's radical inclusivity. We need everyone. We need everyone. Does wealth have anything to do with it? No. The water bearer and the wood chopper are, are named here. Right? So. Along with the heads of the tribes. Along with the heads of the tribes. All right. They didn't mention this housekeeping. Housekeeping? Are you kidding? I didn't like, housekeeping. That's every woman's job. Right? <laughs> Every woman of Israel would have been housekeeping. All right. So what are, they cho- what are they there for? To enter into the covenant of Adonai, right? Which Adonai is uh, making with you, is cutting with you today. With its sanctions, right? Everybody bears the sanctions equally too. That was last week. That was last week. We got a, quite a list, didn't we? Of what those sanctions look like. To the end that God may establish you this day as God's people and be your God as promised as God promised you and swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, I make this covenant 
with its sanctions, not with you alone, but with those who are standing here with us this day before Adonai our God and with those who are not with us here this day. So there's a couple of ways you could interpret that. So Lynn's already said the way the rabbis have interpreted it. The rabbis interpret this to mean everyone who would ever be part of the covenant were bound at this moment. By the way, when is this moment? We don't know. We're not told. Right? We, we, have no, we, we get a description of, okay, y'all are here for this, but we don't get any description of the ceremony. We don't get any idea like when it actually happened, what's going on. We're just not told. Um, but the covenant was binding on everybody who would ever be part of it at that moment, say the rabbis. And the rabbis go further and say anybody who was ever going to be part of the Jewish people, actually their souls were at Sinai. So it's even before this moment that all the way back to Sinai, anyone who would ever be Jewish, their neshama was there. Okay, lovely. So it's another equalizer, right? So converts, we're at Sinai. Doesn't matter when you convert, you were at Sinai. And accepted Torah then. And you thought you had a choice, right? You thought you were making that choice in this lifetime. So... Um, so it's a, it's a great equalizer that nobody can say, yeah, but my ancestors, you know, we're at Sinai. Right. We were all yeah. there, according to the rabbis, and we all cut this covenant. Um, it, it became binding. Some, so some people say, well, how can you make a covenant binding on people who don't agree to it? This is, this is the Jewish people, that, right? This is, this is one of those things that is binding on one, whether one agrees or not. Because one has inherited belonging to this people that has a relationship, a certain relationship and a certain set of agreements with the divine. And so some people say, well, that's not fair. I remember having this, clearly having this conversation with somebody who said, I'm not sure I want to be part of the Jewish, she's Jewish, born Jewish, raised Jewish. I'm, I'm, you say that I'm you know, yours, that I, you know, I belong to the Jewish people, but like, I get to decide where I belong. I said, well, not really. <laughs> like, like, not really. Um, we're so into that mindset. I'm like, yeah, you can do whatever you want. You don't ever have to do any of this. You don't ever have to come back to a Jewish... Yeah, fine. It doesn't make you less part of the Jewish people. And she said, well, how do you get to decide who claims me? I said, because you're ours. <laughs> it's like, you... you it, Sorry, like it's just who we are. Like it's who we are that we understand you to be one of ours. You don't have to like that, but that's how it is. And she said, you don't get to decide that for me. I don't want to be claimed. That feels like a burden to me and it feels like somebody else is defining who I am. She wasn't wrong. I'm not saying she's wrong. It's just not Jewish. You don't have to do it. You don't have to come to shul. You don't have to ever do eat a lox or bagel again. It's fine. <laughs> But the Jewish people don't understand you as less Jewish, right? And that's where, like, we were kind of, you know, talking like this. But it's like because to me it makes perfect sense. And she was saying, but I get, I can reject that. I'm like, well, not really, <laughs> not in our world, right? So, and this is the craziness of it. I get it that it's crazy. I get it that it's counterintuitive. I get it that in our American, I have this identity and this identity, and I'm part of this community and this way. Then we like to think we choose everything about who we are, but that's not true. We don't choose to be American citizens. You can leave here. You can move to France. You can move to, you know, Tahiti. Fine. It doesn't make you not an American. Right? You, 
That's who you are. You can live in Italy for 14 years. Okay. You're still an American living in Italy. Maybe you speak fluent Italian, right? And are, you know, a leader in that community. You're still an American. So you're still choosing to, right, to not live in America as an American. So that's the part that I personally find compelling, deeply compelling. There are things we do not choose about who we are. And for us, one of them is being part of this whole crazy business of 3,000 years of the Jewish people trying to figure out how to do this relationship with that which is bigger than we are that calls us into what's moral and right and good and true and ethical and compassionate and just and, and all that that means. Isn't right? there another issue here? Not so much who you are, but whether you're bound by something that you never agreed to. Yeah. Or whether you're bound by something that, some law that was made a long time ago. Yeah. Now in civil law, we accept that all the time. Right. I mean, we I obey, didn't agree to we, not murder anybody. Right, we, we obey laws that were passed before we were born that we didn't vote on. That's exactly right. And, and countries do that as well with treaties and stuff like that. Yep. But for a lot of people today, I know growing up in the 60s, do your own thing. You know, it's like, I don't want to be, you know, how can I be obligated by something I never agreed to? Well, and, and, the answer for that. But for me, I feel like <laughs> one of the answers to that is we'll then get involved in deciding what your Reconstructionist <laughs> community decides is binding still. Right? So, I mean, I get it. It's a whole different argument if we're talking Orthodox, conservative. Mm -hmm. I get it. That's a whole other discussion. I'm not in that community, mm -hmm. so I don't have to have that discussion right now. But what I could say is, so then join your local Reconstructionist mm -hmm. community, and then you get to have a voice in what do we think is still mm -hmm. binding what do we consider of this to be the agreements that we accept, right, upon our communities? But I think perhaps a, an even better analogy would be simply that of the family as opposed to, say, citizenship. Because in, in truth, one can renounce mm -hmm. one's American citizenship. Mm -hmm. You can live in Italy for 14 years as a citizen, but should you choose to do so, you can turn in your passport and become an Italian citizen. Your mm -hmm. On the other hand, but you're okay. So let me rephrase. You're born an American. You're I mean, you're you're, right. you're you're of American descent. You're, you're, right, right, right. Mm -hmm. But you can't. But but regardless of the family that you're born mm -hmm. into, say the biological family that you're born into, you may end up at some point in your life disagreeing with every member of your family and not wanting to see them again or anything. But you can't. On child yourself from being somebody's so, child. Right. So this is not about obligation. Yeah, it is. But <laughs> yeah, it is. So you are telling this woman that you are speaking to that she, whether she likes it or not, she's a Jew and she has the obligation. So now that would have been an interesting conversation. <laughs> we didn't get to that place. Um, this is about obligation, right? This. The understanding that there's a covenant between us and God is an obligation. Um, I like to think that we can say to every member of the Jewish people that we are obligated to be ethical and moral and desire to be compassionate. Right? Do we do, we do that all the time? If we did, we wouldn't need Yom Kippur. Right? <laughs> Coming up. No, of course we don't, right? But I, I feel perfectly fine saying, you know, we as a people understand that we are obligated to try and understand in any given situation what is the right thing to do here. 
And people can say, well, I don't feel obligated by that. Okay. People get a choice to break the covenant all the time. It doesn't mean we're not obligated, right, to try to figure it out. It means we're choosing not to. And we see from the statement of the consequences last week, right, how powerfully those were described. Why were they so grim and so powerfully, morbidly described? Because people broke the covenant all the time. You don't need those kind of horrifyingly frightening sanctions unless you're really trying to scare people into doing what they don't want to do, which is accepting our obligations. Now, what those are, we could have a four-hour conversation and not scratch the surface of understanding what do we mean when we say obligation, right? And what, and what does that mean across the Jewish spectrum? But, um, but I think every, every human society understands a sense, I hope, of obligation to be a good and moral society, right? And if it doesn't, I think that's wrong. I, I just do. But in our society, so many people think obligation is optional. I totally get it. I totally get it. And, I, and I, that's, one, that's, I think, part of it, the heart of what we were struggling about, is, is obligation optional. Margo? This discussion uh, brings to mind um, a lot of years ago when my children were in um, religious school, they had a program called Haparat No War. Yeah. And they met uh, one uh, every sixth weekend or something and went away for that uh, weekend. And one of the subjects of one of those weekends, or maybe many of them, I don't know, it wasn't. Um, that connected to what they were studying was, were you an American first or a Jew, a Jew first? I remember that class. Hmm? You remember that remember class? class? I remember our teacher asking, are you an American Jew or a Jewish, Jewish American? American? And trying to wrestle with what do you right. mean? And I sort of still think, well, is it, is it that, I'm, am I more a noun or the adjective? Like, which is more powerful? I still don't know what it is. Right you decide one versus the other, I still, which is more. Right. Well, I mean, and, and many of us, to the, to the research on identities, right, many of us argue it's, it's a silly question. Mordecai Kaplan would say it's a silly question. And see, I'm surprised. <laughs> right? Because Mordecai Kaplan said, we walk in two civilizations. We walk firmly, confidently, fully in two civilizations. We are Jews and we are Americans. Am I more brunette or more female? Like, what? I'm really a brunette. I mean, like, like, what? like what does that mean, right? To say, I pick this part of my identity over that one when they're equally both true. We've had to choose always before, right? And, and I believe that question comes from an anti-Semitic history, frankly, right? Can you be an American and a Jew? Which are you really? Is a question that <coughs> has been used against Jews forever. You can't be a good Frenchman, right? The famous, right? And and be a Jew because then you're somehow allied with you know, this Israel business and wanting to see Israel come back as, as, a, as a nation and then you're going to have alliances to that. Right? It's been the charge against Jews forever. So for me, it's got an anti-Semitic like, taint to it and flavor to it to ask, 
Which are you real? It's a suspicious, and I'm not saying this people's intention. I don't mean to do. I'm dramatizing because, because just so we can now go out of here going, oh, whew, okay, it's that settled, right? Because to say you have to pick means you can't be fully both, and you can't be loyal to both, and that is. That is the glory of this gift of being in America as Jews, is that we are offered for the first time from a country's inception to be fully a part of it by being citizens with equal rights and responsibilities to all other people, unless you were a woman, of course. Then you just couldn't vote or anything. But, or, unless, or unless you were black, then you know, forget about it. But, um, you know, but as Jews, we got offered full citizenship from the beginning and never lost it. You know, we gained it and lost it three times in Germany. So to never lose it over the entire experience of this country, is that's the, that's the beauty of that for Jews. We don't have to answer that question anymore. I am both. And I agree with you, but I hope that the teachers of those at that time, I mean, I questioned this program when I first you know, heard about it, but as I said, I never really got into it that much. And when you say that it, it can promote uh, anti-Semitism, um, the only anti-Semitic situation that I had ever been in was, I was uh, again, years ago when I first moved here, I was in a little musical group and we were talking about um, composers and there were very few American composers. So I said, well, Leonard Bernstein is an American composer and this, this other woman who was sitting, I'm, not, I'm sure she didn't, Sure, she sort of meant something by it, but anyway, she said it. She said, he's not American, he's Jewish. And, and it really got to me. Right? The, and, that, uh, and you're right. And, and it's interesting because I, I said that for me it smacks of the history of anti-Semitism, but it was, it's very interesting to watch Jews ask other Jews the question. And in our class the other night, and, and I engaged, it came up. Someone said, are you a Jewish American or an American Jew? And it was a Jew asking other Jews. And of course, the right answer is, in that context, you're a Jew first. So, so it, isn't, it isn't only from right, an anti-Semitic perspective, but I think the history of anti-Semitism that says you cannot be both a Jew and a full member of another society, and therefore, you have to be a Jewish American or an American Jew, it, is the legacy that we're living into, even when we think we're being pro-Jewish, right? We undermine our own, our own citizenship when we say, you, you have to have Jew as the answer first, right? I went, a couple of weeks ago, I went to a baby naming ceremony, and the rabbi was on Neil Cohen's Beautifully said, right? That you wouldn't say, 
Uh, I'm a person with a right hand. <laughs> well, your left hand sits. You know, we, we have. Do we have a right hand and a left hand? Right. Which, which, which do you prefer? Well, I, want, I guess that's not a fair question. But. Right. 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 But, but leaving aside the question of anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. in this in this country we have a long and not particularly honorable history of asking the very same question of people who are not Jewish. In other mm-hmm. words, are you are you Irish or are you American? Are John you F. Italian? Kennedy. Well, John F. Kennedy. There were people. This is mm-hmm. back in 1960. Even in 1960, mm-hmm. even though Al Smith ran for president in 1928 as the first Catholic to run for president. There were people running, there were people worried in the 60s that somehow, if John Kennedy became president, then the Pope would get too involved in our business. You know? And so they didn't want it. And so is he, is he Catholic first or is he American first? It wasn't even Democrat or Republican. Yep. Absolutely. I'll just say that yeah, in our country, 100%, that there's been, it's not just the Jews. But, but to our discussion last week, you know, the Jews have a special history yes. of because we've been Jews for 2,000 years living everywhere, the question's been asked of us wherever we've been, right, in a way that it wasn't asked. And maybe it's asked of other immigrants to those countries as well, but for sure the Jews always been, and by Jews has been asked to choose, right, which, what are you first? We're talking about maybe the, I won't say negative, but the obligation which can be perceived as negative, and um, I think it's, it's one of the most meaningful parts of my life that I am included in this covenant and that, you know, uh, when I go into a room and I, I, you could just on a soul level, it's like we're, we're both in the covenant. I, it's a very special feeling. So, um, so the, the positive identity part, right, of someone else when you walk in a room that what I hear you saying is you find out they're Jewish, right? Yeah, that, that we, just, there's yeah, something we have here, even here, that we share. We have, you know, one neshama and one, uh, you know, we're one people, and uh, I, I, I find so much beauty and strength and comfort being part of our people. Getting back to the text for a second. The <laughs> sorry, I apologize. No, I, I'm not not to be critical of what Pam was saying at all, which I think is beautiful. Um, in, in reading this, it's got men, it's got women, it's got children. The fascinating thing to me is that last thing, the, the last line, those who are not with us here today, mm-hmm. to me, legitimizes us keeping on looking at what this means. In other words, it's not just men and women and strangers and woodcutters, it's also this generation as well as past generations. And that this generation looking at it from a Reconstructionist point of view, is not less valid in being a part of this than years ago. There are many people who only look at the past. But this, to me, really legitimizes the Reconstructionist approach, not that it needs legitimization, in terms of saying, this generation matters as well. Mm -hmm. We are part of the ongoing covenant, and we are part of the ongoing interpretation, not just Rashi. Right, and on... And uh, on Rosh Hashanah, my sermon is going to include the story, right? Mm-hmm. It's not in heaven anymore. That it's mm-hmm. not only are we relevant, we are the only place authority can reside, ultimately. Our generation. We, the, the past has a vote, mm-hmm. right? But we have the veto. 
and that, 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 that there isn't another way for it to function. We, we, every generation, has had to take this and understand it. Once you invent a microwave, the past is not going to help you understand is it kosher after you cook meat in it to cook dairy in it or not. Right? The, the past won't, you're going to use the past to help you make a decision about what has to be to kosher a microwave, but you, the authority to determine what the law is, to go to law for a second, mm -hmm. the obligations mm -hmm. or whatever, to interpret it has to be on this generation. It, it, it can't reside anywhere else, right? And we've, we, I think we often forget that. That's true for all of the different denominations. So Correct. Those who go back Correct. to where I'm going to Absolutely. The decision today to stick with whatever's been done. <laughs> Absolutely. I've been thinking a lot about all this. Let me rewind. Humanity has a very dark side, as we know. What? Yes. So maybe it's like, when we were reading this, I was thinking it's like, okay, if there's a place where there is ethics, morality, rule, everything that we are in covenant with, and we are like, there's a straw from that to this dark, roiling planet of people, Holocaust and immigrant, all these horrible things and waves of terrible things, and it's our obligation, if we can find our way to that straw and wrestle with it, we were given something that will enable us to, to make it better, to be better. So that's our, that's, that's why I'm here. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Yes. Is that, is that beautifully stated? That ultimately, that's the point. Ultimately, that's what this is supposed to do. This set of obligations, this agreement, right? This back and forth of responsibility to the relationship. What it's supposed to do is help us be, or legoyim, right? A, a light in that roiling darkness. Each one of us has to do that individually. And we're going to go to some interpretations that are beautiful about that. And we have to do it collectively, right? And each people needs to do it. We believe each people needs to do it in its own way so that exactly that happens. And the more peoples live into their own wisdom traditions, their own, right, good religion, you know, when it's good religion, um, then that's, that's the point of it. That's the purpose is to spread as much of that as, as possible because we've got to combat within ourselves and within the world, the, exactly what Torah gets is the truth. Is it, There's a lot of darkness and a lot of evil and a lot of yucky, and we have to name it, confront it, which we're going to do at this season, right? That's what this season is all about, not trying to deny that it lives right here, right? The darkness is right here. I have to address that and as an individual, and then we as a community stand. Y'all are standing, all y'all here this day. The rabbis say it's Rosh Hashanah. What is this day? The rabbis. The rabbis. Mm -hmm. It's Rosh Hashanah, of course, right? Because that's when we see all the people of Israel standing ready to say, I take responsibility for my behavior. And, and then we, when we do it collectively as well, that we do exactly what you said. Did I see a hand over here? Robert hasn't spoken. Simple question. That the line you mentioned a minute ago, I've always thought was really important. It's not in heaven. It, I know it's in Talmud. Is it in Torah? Yeah. It's in um, yeah. Torah it's in somewhere? Torah, and the rabbis. Where, where is it in Torah? I don't even remember. Where it says it's not too far from you. Yeah. Right. It's on your the, lips. It's in your own mouth that you right? so, so, okay. so it's not so far away that you can. It's not in the heavens that you're going to say who's going to go get it for me right here. Yeah. 
and and so then the rabbis take that and hurl that at the bat kol and right. completely and flip the, the meaning thing. exactly. But I'm, but I'm also hearing from what you said is there's that there's the Jewish people are resilient and we can in our day when something when something happens to uh, shake our place in the world we can look backwards and say <coughs> we are resilient and we come back and we renew ourselves. Indeed. And I, I could not agree more. Sarah? There's another dimension that we are omitting in the conversation, and it's tremendously important, and that's the children and the future. So talking about our feelings and taking from the past, but part of what we have to do is ensure that generations to come get some... Uh, purpose for themselves as Jews and some enrichment in their lives as Jews and some pleasure as Jews. And uh, I think our tradition is pretty smart about this. What with the four questions at Pesach, kids used to start learning to read Hebrew at three in our tradition. And uh, <clears throat> and bar mitzvahs and the way bat mitzvahs are interpreted today, I think we've got a good future. So Sarah, can I call you sometimes <laughs> at like 3 a.m.? Um, from, from your mouth, right? Halavai, halavai, it should only be. It's, uh, I wish I had your confidence. I mean, of course I have to walk around here with confidence that we have a bright future. I, I mean, it's, it's really, for most professional Jews I know, it's the, it's the thing that keeps us up at night. Because we see what's happening with our young people and in a way that's never happened before with the devices and the, the ways they're pulled off focus so quickly um, and find so little meaning in, in, in things that that we have valued and treasured, you know, for so long. I keep hoping that you know they'll come back, you know, on the other side of adolescence and whatever. But we're, I'm, I'm concerned, and I'm concerned that I don't know that we're taking seriously enough the need. And this is a conversation that we're going to be having in our community. I'm hoping at the board level is, I don't know that we're taking seriously enough the obligation to give them positive Jewish experiences. I'm not positive Jewish experience. I think we're trying to do that, but a really creative, exciting, dynamic Jewish educational engagement. Supplementary schools are not working. It's not working. But camps work. Camps work. The percentage of Jewish children who go to camp is very is small. And yes, it camp works. And by the way, I don't know if you heard the announcement, but the funding came through for Camp JRF West. So the place in the Poconos where I go every summer and I make Eliana go, um, Camp JRF, our movement's camp. Um, we are now going to have a Western branch of camp, and it's going to be an arts camp. So focusing on... <laughs> you excited, Kay? All right, good. We'll sign you up for, to, for, to be a counselor to teach surfing. Um, so uh, it's going to be an arts camp. So uh, 
you know, really des uh, designed to be uh, exploring in creative and amazing ways um, the arts because it needs to be a niche, a niche camp. There are too many Jewish camps here for us to be just another horseback riding archery camp. Um, but so please spread the word. I'm serious. Like we, it won't go if we don't have kids ready to ready to come. So spread the word. And I'll be, I'm going to be a cheerleader spokesperson out there for it, so anybody can feel free to contact me about it. Who's going to design the apps? And I'm serious, but I think... For Jews? For, Jew, for being Jewish? Yeah, for kids, because that is where they live, and that is not going to go away, so it's how you blend it and, and use it as a strength. That's a real question. Last night we... Um, this is not, I, my kids are on this all the time. Um, but I Googled last night, questions for Elul. Mm -hmm. And for a good 15 minutes, which is like a marathon at dinner, I printed two pages and everybody got to pick a question. We had such good conversation about resilience or you know whatever it was. So little, little things that really didn't have anything, it didn't have to do with Judaism per se. It was inspired by that because I remember to think, oh, how would you do this? But the question could have been anything you pulled out of a box of, you know, cool questions to ask your friends. And um, later they went back to the video game. So it's, you know, it's sort of a way of weaving it in as part of what's not going to change and what, how our world is going to be. I'm Sarah. You can call me too. I will call you too, Laura Diamond. <laughs> Good, I've got two on the list. Anybody else who wants to sign up for three o'clock phone calls? Excellent, thank you, Lynn. Well, oh, you're asking questions, sorry. But in the spirit, uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar, but there is a new pilot program going on in eight communities called Honeymoon Israel. If you're not familiar, it's the next step almost in birthright. It's for interfaith yes. couples. And they go, they pay $1,800, they go, the, the rest is absorbed by whatever agency in that community is funding it. And they go to Israel for 10 days with 20, 19 other couples who are just like them. And when they come back to their community, there's support for them, and they get together. And I was at a conference and there were three young couples who had recently returned, one of them was carrying their little two-month-old baby, who they said was their souvenir from Israel. <laughs> and of the three couples, two of them were so blown away, they're seriously trying to figure out how to make Aliyah. Mm. So it just made me think how nimble our community is, the Jewish community, where we, we see that there's an issue, a need, and it is being addressed. So like the camp, and like what Laura does, so it's and it's important for us to know how to send folks you know to all of these places where their Jewish lives can be grown so it's after people are grown but the problem that you see oh no! Yeah. Oh no! It's way before that. It's way before that. You, you ask a fifth grader what they think about religious school, and it's grim. It hasn't that always been the case. Yeah. I don't. But I, 
I don't. I don't think because it's been the case for a while. I don't think that makes it any better. I no, think. No, no, I think no. what it's led to is attrition. The rates of, of disaffiliation that we're seeing are at, at an all-time high. So I think it's been a slow attrition, and and you add it to this generation being really, you know, all over the place in terms I just of. Mean it because I hated going to Hebrew in Sunday school, and I feel. Very, very Jewish. So, so part of the question is why? Why do you feel that? What factors were in place that you hated religious school, but you feel positive Jewish identity anyway? That's where all the research money is going. Is why do you feel positively Jewishly identified? It ain't because of Hebrew school. I can tell you that. That may be one piece of it that you share that memory with people, right? But everyone says I suffered, so you have to go, right? Like you know, the father kicking the kid out of the car. Like I had to go, so you have to go. It's part of what our people suffers, right? You know, and um, so that, that's its own thing, maybe. You know, in terms of attachment to the, you know, but it, but it isn't what gives people a, a positive Jewish identity in in the research, right? And so that that's where we're really struggling. What they're finding is things like camp, things like immersive Jewish experience. Yes. They're saying yes. positive experiences in childhood is what is, is the determining factor, by the way, more than intermarriage. People say intermarriage is the number one factor. They're wrong. They, they crunched all the data again from the NJPS study and they found that that was not the single most important factor on, in whether a child will grow up to have a Jewish identity as an adult. It was, do they have positive Jewish experiences in childhood? So our, what that says to us is that it's on us, right, to make sure that we are doing everything we can to provide really positive experiences for kids um, so that their only response isn't, I hate going to religious, I hate Hebrew school, right? The, if that's, right. This may be harking back to another day, but um, um, the, my, my son went to preschool here, and uh, yeah, it was the, be apprentice mm-hmm. there in the old days. Yeah. And oh my gosh. I was his teacher. Oh, <laughs> what? Uh, and I'm sitting here looking at you and thinking, I know who you are, but I can't. It is a small Jewish and world. Then, <laughs> the reason that he got so involved in this is having gone to preschool and then on to um, uh, Hebrew school where they, they, he and his friends, Josh Yellen, Joan Garb, Aaron Greenberg, they all walked over from Marquez and they loved it. So, you know, I, to me, it was a totally different experience to, to have them just love coming over here. I mean, it was a cool thing to do. They got to walk out to the boulevard together, cross the street. And see, there's, the there's the key, together. I believe that's the key. They formed a community and had extremely positive experiences in the ECC. We find that almost universally. Kids who are in the ECC naturally matriculate into, you know, being part of the community if we do a good job of keeping them and their parents do a good job of having them come because it's a them. They know these other kids since they're little. It's different for a kid walking in here you know, not having been a part of that, it, it, and it, and we're that that's kind of one of the challenges. It, I wonder if I could go on um, just about one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to try to mention this, but I would like to share something really quickly because I know you want to get back to this. But relating to Bert what does. we just read, well, well, in regard to this, and not to to make um, comparisons between other cultures, but um, when I was in Italy, my town had no. No Jews 
as I mentioned it, uh, there was, wasn't a single person left from the Holocaust, and no one came back. So when I was seeking out these other synagogues around in Venezia and Verona, and all the places that I ended up going, um, what I discovered was they were all survivors. Mm. And the people in my town, because I, it was all, I mean, they considered themselves Italian. Everything was the family. You didn't need to say you were Catholic because there were 41 churches in a town that had 8,000 people in the old city walls. So it was just, you know, there was, you just went to the nearest church. But there was no place for the, I mean, for anybody, nobody would want to come back to Corona because it just, it was too painful. But the people who came back to the bigger cities um, were, their identity, as we were talking about identity, was very much Jewish and then Italian. But they were all survivors of the Holocaust, and they were all, they didn't, weren't necessarily from that town, but many of them were Italian. They considered themselves much more uh, Jewish, as we discussed in many things, because they were, they never wanted to see this happen again, so they really had to stay together. And of course, the Italians were the ones who turned, turned them in. Right. So, so right. So again, how? Yeah, it's so much different than how, the situation that we have here in America. We, that's right. We weren't thrown out. That's right. And, and so that our, right that their identity is Jewish completely. Right. They don't because it had to be right. Because because they, they were identified as Jews first by the Italians. Right. So it's the anti-Semitism that raises. You know, I have to be a Jew first right. and foremost. Right. That that's the. Right, that's the incredible blessing of this opportunity we have here in America. All right, let's go to 11, verse 11 of chapter 30. We're skipping. Surely this instruction which I enjoin upon you this day is not too baffling for you, nor is it beyond reach. It is not in the heavens that we should say, who among us can go up to the heavens and get it for us and impart it to us that we may observe it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who among us can cross to the other side of the sea and get it for us and impart it to us that we may observe it? No, the thing is very close to you, in your mouth and in your heart to observe it. All right. All right, so we are promised, right, that it is accessible to us. We are promised that it lives with us. It is in our very mouths, right? That it, it is not something so far away that somebody has to go retrieve it for us and then explain it to us, right? That it's not above our heads. It's not outside of our realm of experience and possibility to engage with and fulfill. And this is another thing about Judaism and Jewish tradition that I so love and appreciate. Is that it, you know, you shall teach it to your children. We teach it to the children. We teach this to the children. We don't say, I'll tell you what this means. Right? And, and reserve these words and the teaching for the leadership only or a certain class of Jew only. It's always been vishinantam levanecha vidibartabam all the time. When you're walking, when you're sitting, when you're doing, when you're not doing, when you're rising, when you're sick. It should be about discussing and engaging with and teaching Torah to our children. And that we should, you know, and if children can access it, hello, right, then we have absolutely no excuse, right, for not engaging with understanding what it means for us? What does it demand of me today? What does it demand of me in this situation? What does it demand of me this year? Right? What does it demand of me in this relationship um, to really live into this, this business? This part about it being close to you and in your mouth, 
uh, it's almost, to, to use a more modern terminology, it's almost saying that if you live in covenant, the knowledge is tacit, in the sense that you don't even need to articulate. It's kind of like, like, I'm not a particularly good cook, but my understanding of what a good cook can do is even without being able to articulate it, they kind of know, oh, this needs a little more salt, or this needs this, or this needs that. Well, if you live in covenant, it's kind of like, you kind of like, even though you can't articulate it, you kind of know what the right thing to do is. It's not like you have to, like, I've got this problem, let me go check in volume seven what I'm supposed to do. If you're living in covenant, you kind of, you've already come to sort of like your own understanding of how to behave. Great. Great. May we get to a time where we all feel it in our mouths um, and intuitively. So, um, Robert, remember it, okay, for, for Rosh Hashanah Day, okay? Because all y'all who are going to be at Westwood on Rosh Hashanah, all right, remember what it means in this context. Because the rabbis are going to flip it on its head, and I'm going to preach it. All right. Atem nitzavim kuchem hayom. Atem. So I'm gorgeous. Rabbinic comment. I just, I can't print. Sorry, y'all. Atem. So the rabbis have uh, a couple of beautiful interpretations of this that I wanted to share with y'all because it's fun. If you switch these letters around a little bit, I wish Rita were here. So if you switch these letters around, you get what? Yeah, good job. Emet. What is emet? Truth. Truth. Faithfulness. And faithfulness. But we're going to stay with truth for now. It works better for this. Um, all right. So if you switch atem around, taking, taking right the plurality of atem, and you switch those letters around, you get emet. You get truth. What is the first letter of the alphabet? What's my next question going to be? First letter of the Ten Commandments. Ah, that was a good guess. But it's, not, it's wrong. Um, all right, so. <laughs> first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is, it's true, is Aleph. What's the last letter of the alphabet? Ah, right? Right? So, the truth is what splits the path between all y'all, right, to reach. That, that it takes this plurality of Atem to reach emet. Yes? And it's the olive through tav. We need, we need all of it. What is mem, by the way? What, where's mem in the alphabet? Any guesses? Middle. Right in the middle. <laughs> it is the center letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That it takes olive through tav, right? Unless you think it's just this one over here and this one over here, the mem is in there to let you know it takes the whole business, it takes a tem. It takes all y'all and all y'all's opinions and all y'all's perspective to reach <coughs> Emmet. A to Z. A to Z. I think it's in the Talmud where it says the world is built on him. And you can see from beginning, middle, and end, it's, it's built on Emmet. Yeah. Lovely. 
Evan Makir Titzak, the wonderful uh, rabbis play with these letters and say, don't read this as the word atem, meaning y'all, read this instead as an acronym. <laughs> right? It stands for uh, Evan Mekir, no, sorry, this one, Evan Mekir Titzak, that the, uh, it's a quote from scripture, uh, that even hearts that have been hardened will cry out, like wanting to to be back in relationship or wanting to, you know, even hearts of stone will want to cry out and come back and do tshuva and, and return, right? So the, the rabbis, the rabbis take all of this to be available to us, right, as a love letter. And every word, every letter is packed with potential to be right, a teaching for us about how to be uh, in relationship to this whole business. And we're going to look at some other interpretations of Atem and Kuchem quickly. These are different. So take one and pass, and it should go that way. Yes? Challah French toast is also another important way. Challah French toast? Have positive my father of blessed memory made the best challah French toast ever. There you go. You have done well, my friend. You have done well. Yeah. The Gefilte Manifesto. The what? The Gefilte Manifesto. All right. These hipsters in Brooklyn have taken all the old traditional recipes and turned them on their head and made them. There was something on NPR about it, and I got the cookbook. All right. So has it gone all the way around? Yeah, it's coming right Okay, good. So we're going to look at this one that says communal return and personal renaissance. This is by Rabbi Rachel Shabbat Beit Halachmi. We're going to look at the paragraph that starts our covenant with the God. Fifth, fifth paragraph down. Got it? Okay. Our covenant with the God of the past, present, and future is renewed in the most radical, trans-historical context of communal return. God isn't only interested in each of us as individuals, in all our preciousness, but is clearly as invested in us as a collective. Despite all of our individualism and autonomy, we don't stand before God only as our single selves, but also as part of a larger, radically trans-historical Jewish people. Jewish philosophers and theologians, including rabbis uh, Joseph Do Dov Soloveitchik, an Orthodox thinker, and Eugene Borowitz, a liberal reform thinker, have taught of this dual sanctity and double bond with God, both individually and collectively as foundations of the covenant. Beyond this covenantal significance, it seems that we stand together 
especially these days, so that we might be motivated by the power of the community. Together, whether on a mountain or in a valley or in the myriad of places we will gather in the coming days, we are more likely to grasp the power of our shared narrative and what it can inspire us to become. These are the moments that give us a deeper sense of what it means to be committed to something beyond ourselves, beyond our individual needs, and beyond time. Incredibly beautifully stated about, Amen. right? That it's, and it's not just on this page. We're about to do this, people, right? We're about to stand together as individuals and as members of a radically trans-historical people. And it's still activated it's still resilient it's still we're still here and we're still doing this to shuv return is said seven times in this week's parsha and that's what we're about to do all y'all who decide on sunday night or monday that it's worth your time to come here or to westwood are doing this we're saying it's still worth showing up not just to be on a mountain, that's fine too. You know, go on a hike, that's fine. I get it, people do that. There's, there's a reason some of us still buy the synagogue service. That we still believe, right, that it's, there's something just as powerful. And a hike is fine. I'm not in any way trying to denigrate any way people want to do Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. This is beautiful that we still come together to do it. Whatever it is. Right? And you know, my daughter said, I don't want to come. It's boring. And it's just the whole service. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Is Hebrew school working? Not so much. So, um, <laughs> and why do I have to go? And I said, Bring a book. I don't care. Bring a book. And you can sit with your Jewish people all around you, hearing the music flow over you and the sacred, sacred words and the brilliant oration of the rabbi <laughs> as it washes over you and um, and you can be reading Harry Potter for all I care right but because of what I say to her you have to go you don't get an it's not optional right because there is something powerful about sitting with thousands of Jews at this time of year standing with them for Ashamnu Bagadnu and our kids seeing adults saying Together and as individuals, I messed up. And guess what? We don't go, <gasps> then leave. You, you did what? You're out, right? We all say from Aleph through Tab, we all say the Asham new together, and it's new. Asham new, Bagad new, Gazal new. We have messed up, all of us. We don't have people stand up and, and do confession of their individual sins, because guess what? It's all the same. Right? We, we, all, we all engage in all of it in, in some way. And the collective new is important, right? And that, that there is a way that each individual has the courage to say and confess out loud because everyone else is confessing the same stuff. That's powerful as a model, as an example of what it means as a responsible adult to take out loud responsibility for having messed up along with the entire rest of the community who's saying the exact same words and hopefully feeling it, and then saying, and we believe as a people that this holiday must end with the hope that we have been forgiven. We are commanded to believe at the end of Yom Kippur that we have been forgiven. We are commanded to have a feast at Breakfast. Commanded to rejoice at Breakfast. 
You're not allowed to leave Yom Kippur going, okay, well, everyone else has been forgiven, but not me. I'm special. I'm worse than everybody else. I'm not worthy. Right? That's, that's arrogance in our community. Everyone is forgiven. And if you don't believe that you have been forgiven, then you are some way saying God is cheap. That God can't forgive. Because there's something you've done that God can't forgive. God's that small? Say the rabbis, right? We, there is something amazingly powerful about digging deep for 10 days. And all of this time, digging really deep, confessing out loud, and then being commanded to believe, okay, now it's time to move on. That's done. Now I have the opportunity to do it differently. And now we as a community have the opportunity to go forward differently. And please God, it should happen that we as a community do it differently than what I've been looking at and participating in for the last year, right? The last six months. It's like, I don't know about y'all, but I, I can't even turn on CNN anymore. Yeah. I just can't, I can't look at Facebook feed. I'm just like, you know, la, 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 la. <laughs> like, it's just gotten so bad. Hence the Rosh Hashanah sermon. Um, <laughs> let's quickly at, at Rabbi Shefagol. And go to where it says, the side that says the spiritual challenge. And right in the middle, there's this little paragraph that starts this spiritual challenge of Nitzavim. See that? All right. This spiritual challenge of Nitzavim can only be taken up when we learn how to stand before God. In standing fully before God, we can finally embrace our whole selves completely. We can take responsibility for our choices. In standing before God, we become true partners in the work of creation. So the teaching of Rabbi Shefa Gold and others like her are saying, standing before God doesn't mean just standing in a place where we're supposed to be before God, right? That's not a location, right? It, it, yes, it's that too that I just described, um, which I think is really powerful. And she's saying standing before God means standing in a way that we are willing to bring our whole selves forward and that we're willing to embrace our whole self. That's what it means to stand before God, is that we get it, that I am a whole person, even the parts that I want to split off, even the parts I'm ashamed of, even the parts I wish weren't a part of me, even the parts of me that I inherited that I wish I didn't inherit, even right, my story, whatever it is, my shame, whatever it is, to stand before God means to bring all of that fully into God's presence and understand ourselves, within ourselves, that that is us. Go to the bottom. I think she's quoting Thich Nhat Hanh here. He understood that to stand in God's presence means to stand outside the whirlwinds of change, anchored in the stillness of center, shining out the fullness of our own presence, attentive to the truth of this moment. From that still center, from that open-hearted awareness, the choice between life and death, blessing and curse, at last becomes clear. Until we stand before God in a state of calm, alert clarity, all the layers of distraction, turbulence, and conditioning will rob from us the freedom of choice. And so as we rise to the challenge of choosing life, we must learn to stand before God, or as Thich Nhat Hanh explained, to live every moment in the awareness of God's presence. 
drop down to the challenge of Nitzavim? The challenge of Nitzavim goes a step further. The continual awareness of God's presence, which we affirm through the act of blessing, leads us to truly stand before God and pass into a covenantal love affair. Covenantal love requires that we stand up, accept our soul's mission, and take action to manifest our purpose and calling. Nitzavim reminds us that we reject that mission at our own peril, and not only at our own peril. Nitzavim tells us that we walk, when we walk in the stubbornness of our heart, that is, resist our true destiny and work, the wet will be swept away with the dry. The innocent will suffer because of our negligence. Nitzavim raises the stakes. Covenantal love calls forth the wisest and best from us and then warns us that there are consequences when we ignore that call. We are being called into community. We are being called into making contact again with our full selves, the wholeness of ourselves, to stand outside the distractions of time and busyness and texting and emails and errands and traffic. And we are called into... Rabbi Shefa Gold. Sorry, I, I must not have written it on there. Yeah. What is this? Sorry, the name of this week's Torah portion. This, this whole portion. So may we have the strength and courage and heart to be willing to stand in the days to come and do the work of tshuva, the hard work of return, that we might accept the mission each of us as a soul incarnate is given. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.